So, John, I hate to ask this, but I've got to ask a question at the start of every movie. That's the curse of the podcast. Have you ever walked in on your parents having sex? Oh, no, no, no. My parents never had sex. They did just like playing leapfrog, though. Some films are fine, just the way they are. Other films sometimes take it way too far. But really, how? How that could it get? Let's go beyond. Beyond the box set. Welcome everybody to Beyond the Box Set, a podcast where we pitch prequels, sequels and spin-offs to films that don't have any. I'm Harry, joining me as always is John. Hello. My voice sounds a little bit tinny this week, let me just try and play with that. Maybe that's better? Ah, oh, whatever. So, <laughs> so just dedication. Yeah, I've, I've had a day. Really? Yeah, well, I mean I woke up, cut myself an omelette and then watched this. <laughs> Why did you watch this in the morning? Why didn't you just watch it last night? Because I didn't know what kind of film this was. That's going blind to films. Fair enough. But in, hind- in hindsight, not the best idea. This is another film which is not good to eat your breakfast to. <laughs> no, it's Especially not. Especially an omelette. No, yeah, you chose When a lot of the film is around a severed ear. It's like, oh God, that just looks so similar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do think this is a good film to watch not knowing what's going to happen. Mm. But by the same token, I wish I'd told you you should probably watch this in the evening because it's definitely... Like you said last week, we were talking about Drag Me to Hell and how I watched that before bed, and that's mm. kind of a perfect time to watch a horror movie in some mm-hmm. ways. I think, yes, this is another film that works best as a late-night kind of movie. Mm. It's got that kind of dark vibe. I mean, I still enjoyed it, but as a general rule, I didn't really like David Fincher films. David Lynch films. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not really that big a fan of his films. What have you seen? Mulholland Drive? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it was something else, but I've forgotten what it was called. Wild or, Heart. Maybe. It, definitely, we saw it together. Oh, right, okay. Yes. <laughs> what was it about? Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern again, on the road together. What were they doing? She's got a really domineering mother, and she forbids their relationship, and they go driving. It's kind of an allegory for The Wizard of Oz. It's... Yeah, yeah, that's the film I thought it was. Yeah, yeah I didn't like that. No. Hated Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. Bits of this, really didn't like. I, I, I don't like his style of movies. In what sense? His style is very weird, mm-hmm. very arty. And a lot of the stuff that he's doing, I get that he's, he's doing something. It's not just random shit. But a lot of the stuff that he's doing just goes straight over my head. And okay. so I, I can't really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the story of this one, I did really enjoy. Okay. And from about 15 minutes in, I, as soon as I worked out vaguely where stuff was, mm-hmm. like plot-wise, yeah, I was quite into this. Okay. Yeah, because I think this is one of his more accessible films. Yeah, I'd say so. Compared to stuff like Mulholland Drive is really weird and genuinely like hard to follow. I mean, I really like that film, but I, mm. I like those kind of movies where you don't necessarily need to understand what's going on. It's more like you just soak it in and then take out of it what you will. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, this one generally has more of a, a plot. Yeah, it's got a plot that you can yeah. follow, basically. So much so that there's points in this film where the characters kind of stop the movie to just explain the plot to anyone who might not have quite... <laughs> been on board with what was happening like, mm. which is helpful because it is there are points in this movie that are confusing mm-hmm. like, but by his standards I think uh, yeah I mean I I really really like this film I, it's fantastic and, it, and I, I wanted to choose this film because it is kind of a real classic I would really describe this film as iconic like there's images in this film and scenes in this film that are just really really famous and I get referenced so much and mm-hmm. I think it's good to have seen this film so you can get those references. Yeah. Kind of similar to the reason I made you watch Yentl, even though I knew you wouldn't like it, just because it's referenced all the time. I mean, with this, I was expecting Yentl. 
You, oh, you thought it was going to be that kind of film. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I don't even know who the, who the director was when I started well, you, watching this. You're like, where's Barbara Streisand? Yeah. <laughs> oh, if she was in this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was a bit gentle and then blue velvet. It sounds like, like like some kind of, like a romance from the 80s. Sure. Because like, well, I mean, it, it, it is kind of is, yeah. Yeah, I guess. But I was like, oh God, why is John always picking these really weird, stupid films? This is awful. I love my films. <laughs> I'm trying to educate you. I don't, I'm trying to push you up your comfort zone. Yeah, a me bit. too. Did you not enjoy Drag Me to Hell? Yes, that was a that was a different kind of education. That's <laughs> a, like, variety, the spice of life. Yeah. I mean, we should do all different kinds of films. Okay, sure. Well, let's wait and see what I've got next. Yeah. So, what were your thoughts on this film in general then? Well, ma- main thought was like, how quickly can I eat this omelette? Sure. I mean, yeah, I find it very intriguing. All the characters are struggling with their own things. It seems mm-hmm. none of which I found relatable. <laughs> you couldn't relate to Frank. Weirdly, no. <laughs> you know what's really funny? So Dennis Hopper, the actor who played Frank, mm. he, a lot of actors turned the role down because they thought it was too dark and too weird. Mm-hmm. He, as soon as he read the script, he called up David Lynch and said, you have to give me this role. I am Frank. <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> wow, what a, if you, yeah, <laughs> what a if, statement. If you read that script and look at Frank and go, this character is me... Mm. You've got some issues. You need to, yeah, exactly. That's that's, a, that's a definitely a red flag. Because by definition, he has issues. He definitely does. Yeah. I mean, I love Dennis Hopper. We'll talk about it, but mm. Dennis Hopper, in, whether he's in a good film or a piece of trash or somewhere in between. What else do I know him from? Uh, Waterworld, most recently we did. He played the villain in that with the uh, one eye. Yes, yes. He's always giving you the full Dennis Hopper experience. Mm-hmm. He was also in Super Mario Brothers as King Cooper. Yep. He's played a lot of villains in good films and in bad, mm. and he's always the best thing in them, regardless. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, he was amazing in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, iconic, like an iconic movie villain. Up there, mm-hmm. I think, with almost up there with Hannibal Lecter, that kind of like, iconic movie villain. Mommy. 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 Baby wants to fuck. Get ready to fuck! You fuckers, fucker! You fucker! Don't you fucking look at me! What would you say the genre of this film is? Hmm. Um, it's kind of a thriller, hmm. mystery, weird. <laughs> the genre is weird. <laughs> The genre is David Lynch, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he is a genre all to himself. Yeah. That's very true. It's got, also got, got kind of a noir kind of mystery kind of vibe, definitely. Like, mm-hmm. bits of it are very much like old 60s black and whites kind of... Yeah, they could have made the film black and white and just said it was 20 years earlier. True. Well, I mean, it's... I wouldn't have known any better. It's set in the 50s, isn't it? It seems to be. Like, is it? Oh, right. Well, it's not clear. It's not completely clear, but, like, I think they watch black and white TV and all... The styling is very, like, 1950s. Mm. Like, the way that Laura Dern in particular is dressed for the whole mm-hmm. film. The cars might be the only thing that ties it to a specific place and time, and I wouldn't be in a position to know what that... Mm. I think it's deliberately supposed to be, like... Ambiguous. Ambiguous, yeah, absolutely. Like it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, no. But mm. It's just, like, small-town USA mm. at some point in the past. Mm-hmm. But I really... That's that's the thing I really like about this film, actually, is that it takes that kind of old Hollywood kind of, you know, picture-perfect little suburban town, and then it adds in all this really dark, fucked-up shit that you'd nev- you would never see in a film before, mm. like, the late 80s. Like, all the stuff with... You know, all the sexual stuff in the film and all the violence in the film as well so yeah the opening scene kind of sets it really well because actually the first thing you see on, on screen at the beginning and the end of the film is a literal velvet curtain mm-hmm. so it's like it's immediately saying this is 
artifice. This is a, it's like it's a play. Yeah. Uh, which I really like. And then it's got the opening shot, which is almost like comedic, like of the white picket fences and slow motion garbage men driving on their trucks and waving happily at nobody and mm-hmm. everyone's all smiles and it's a sunny day and there's mm-hmm. not a cloud in the sky. The old guy's mowing his perfect lawn. It's like a picture-perfect scene. Yeah. And then immediately undercuts it by the guy having this massive stroke. He falls over. The dog's, like, licking at the water. And then it kind of pans down under the grass and you see all the bugs underneath. It's, I mean, mm. a little bit heavy-handed. <laughs> a little mm-hmm. bit as metaphor. There's a lot of heavy-handed metaphors and, and like, imagery in this film. Mm-hmm. But this whole thing of, like, the real, like, dark, disgusting, disturbing stuff that's, like, literally underneath the surface of this kind of picture-perfect yeah. time. Which is basically what the whole film's about. Yeah. So... And then, so the main character in the film is Jeffrey, played mm-hmm. by Kyle MacLachlan. Mm-hmm. Do you know him from anything particularly? Yeah, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and How I Your Mother. He's in a lot of David Lynch stuff. He's got a very intense face. Yes. And I think he's very suited to David Lynch. Yes. Well, I think it's good because he's got a bit of a Matthew Broderick thing going on, where he's yeah, like, he, he looks very like all-American, like, you know, mm-hmm. all-American boy. Like, he couldn't look more like the clean-cut American. Yeah. And I remember we had that discussion in The Cable Guy about how Matthew Broderick's really boring, and mm-hmm. but if he played villains more often, he'd be great. He's Matthew Broderick if Matthew Broderick played villains and was more willing to kind of subvert his image. Of I'd it. like to see the two of them in a film together playing like the same character but different different versions of the same character. Yes. Now that's a very David Lynchy idea. <laughs> oh man. I, well, I was thinking more, more, more of a comedy. Oh, like, a, like Step Brothers or something. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> could also work, yeah. I suppose it could be the same character and then just when they're doing different things. Mm. One actor appears on screen and then the other one changes. Yeah. Or the cable guy, but instead of Jim Carrey, it's Carl McLaughlin. Mm. Different film, but mm-hmm. I think it works. Yeah. A lot more creepy, a lot more realistic. Yeah. Less mugging. Yeah, I like this. Can we just like go offline while I rewrite my entire sequel? <laughs> <laughs> so he plays Jeffrey, who he's the son of the guy who's had the stroke on the lawn at the beginning. So he mm-hmm. comes back from school to take care of his dad and to stay with the family and stuff. So he visits his dad in the hospital, and as he's walking back, he finds a severed human ear in a field. Mm-hmm. So he takes it to the police chief, who seems totally unbothered by this. <laughs> he's still smiling. Yeah, he looks in the bag, he's still smiling. Yeah, he's like, let's take a look. The whole time I'm thinking, like, he's done it. Has he got both his ears? What, what, <laughs> what's going on here? What's going to happen? <laughs> for the whole rest of the film, every character is looking, they've got both ears. Yeah. <laughs> I was just waiting for it to be like, it was me all along. <laughs> we cut off their own ear. <laughs> Something, I don't know. <laughs> By this point, I'd worked out vaguely what sort of film it was. Mm-hmm. Sort of film where anything can happen. Yeah, he just looks into the bag and goes, yep, that's it, yeah. Anyway, I was at the hospital this morning and coming home through the field behind our neighborhood, there behind Vista, I uh, found an ear. You did? A human ear? Yeah, I thought I should bring it to you. Yep, that's right. Let's take a look at it. Yes, that's a human ear, all right. Let's take it down to the coroner's office and see what they make of it. So the police chief kind of takes the ear and does his own investigations, but Jeffrey becomes kind of really fixated on it. He's really curious to know what the story is. So he goes back around to the police chief's house later that night to kind of find out more. And the police chief kind of says, sorry, I can't tell you. You know, it's under investigation. Maybe one day when it's all sorted, but Mm. thank you for handing it in. Goodbye. Yeah. And so as he's leaving the house, he meets Laura Dern, Sandy. Mm -hmm who literally just emerges from the shadows very dramatically. <laughs> yeah, she was great in this. She, so it turns out that she knows about the case because she's overheard her father talking about it. Mm-hmm. And she says that she thinks the ear might be related to a local nightclub singer mm-hmm. called Dorothy Valens, mm-hmm. who's played by Isabella Rossellini. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey decides to investigate this. Mm-hmm. And he comes up with this cockamamie scheme 
to pose as a pest controller mm-hmm. and to go round to Isabella Rossellini's flat apartment. Like a door-to-door pest controller, as yeah. though that's a thing. Yeah, so he poses as a pest control officer to get into her apartment, and then he's going to steal a key, and then when he knows that she's working her nightclub gig, he's going to go back and break into her house and snoop around. Mm-hmm. And then he grabs the keys from under the counter, and I'm like, wait, did he know they were there? How did he know they were there? Because th- there was no sense that he was looking for the keys. Mm-hmm. It was lo- as though he knew they were there. And it was so quick as well. I was like, wait, did he just plant something, or what just happened? Which then also begs the question, is she not going to notice those keys aren't there anymore? No. Again, this is where the movie is just like jumping to get to the point we need to get to. Where How do we get him into the apartment later mm-hmm. on? So anyway, he steals her keys. Mm-hmm. And then he does, in fact, go back to her apartment later on while she's playing her gig. Now, was this the same apartment? Because it looked like an entirely, entirely different, different place. Yeah, yeah, it did. I noticed that too. <laughs> like, so that first scene, it just looked like he walked in and he was just in the kitchen. Mm. And then the next one, it was like a sitcom because there were only three walls to the apartment. Yeah. Because the camera was always on at the same angle, pretty mm. much. Well, two angles, but on the same wall. Lots of cupboards mm-hmm. where most apartments would have like a window or something. Bear in mind, there's no windows in this apartment. Oh, no. Not a one. There was like a small kitchen on one wall and then there was a sofa with a corridor behind it going, leading to a bedroom. Yeah. All it needed for the plot, I guess. Like the bare minimum it needed for plot. Yeah. So no windows in that apartment. No, seemingly not. All the cupboards being in the living room, not in the bedroom. Yeah. I, mean, I can't help but feel like you're focusing on the, the wrong, wrong details. Things. Yeah. I'm, I'm very aware of this. And I don't know why I'm doing it. <laughs> Is it apartment envy? Maybe. Yeah. So he comes back to the apartment later on, starts snooping around, quite disrespectfully. Like, he pisses in a, a toilet. I'm like, come on, man. Have you never stuck around in someone's apartment before? What do you do if you need to pee? You can't just be stuck in the wardrobe and be like, oh, God, I need to go. Oh, sure, yeah, but it's different if you're like, I've already been invited in. But I guess I guess if you've already broken in, it's... Yeah, that's you, what I mean. You've already crossed the Rubicon. Like, you've clearly never done that before. No, clearly you have. Yeah, because he flushes the toilet and that's why he doesn't hear Laura Dern honking the horn that she's coming back up. Mm-hmm. So he gets startled as she comes back in. He's forced to hide in the closet. Mm-hmm. And then he watches as she... Well, she strips down to just her underwear because mm-hmm. that has to happen. And she gets a phone call from a mysterious stranger and she gets very traumatised and it becomes obvious that someone she, she loves is in danger. And then she hangs up. She takes off her wig. Mm-hmm. For the only time in the movie. Yeah. Because beforehand, I was like, that looks pretty wiggy. <laughs> <laughs> and then she takes it off and I was like... It was weird the way she took it off as well because it looked like she was just pulling her hair back to tie it back or something. Then it all came off and I was like, oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she did, it, it was it was a wiggy, wiggy, wig, wig because she, it, looked, it looked like... Uh, she, she looked like Frankenfurter from um, the Rocket Horror Picture Show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's the only time the wig ever comes off. And mm. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Because there are scenes later on where you'd think the wig would come off. Mm-hmm. Right? But anyway, she takes her wig off and she's you know having a whole emotional moment. And then he makes he like makes a noise accidentally. Mm-hmm. And she discovers him. And she drags him out. Jeffrey Beaumont? What are you doing in my apartment, Jeffrey Beaumont? I wanted to see you. Are you kidding? Who sent you here? Nobody. I've seen you before. I sprayed your apartment. I took your key. I didn't mean to do anything except see you. Do you sneak in girls' apartment to see them get undressed? Never before this. Get undressed. I want to see you. Look, I'm sorry. Just let me leave. No way! I want to see you get undressed! Yeah, what did you think of this scene? Confusing. Unrelatable. (laughs) Hot. (laughs) Hot. (laughs) Did you find this to be particularly tantalising? Yeah. Okay. Did you not? 
I suppose this is as close as the film comes to being like genuinely erotic. Um, but also, I find it a bit funny yeah. just having sex, but she's committed to having a right hand <laughs> just holding this knife like an inch from his throat yeah, the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> You'd think you might be a little bit off-putting. So yeah, we, we gather from this that she's got herself some issues. Like, mm, yeah. First of all, she's very angry, and then she starts seducing him a little bit. But then someone else is coming up, and this is going to be Frank, Dennis Hopper. And so she tells him to hide in the closet again and to not make a noise or he will be killed. Mm-hmm. So Cameron Glockin goes back into the closet again. And then we get probably the most famous scene in the whole film of her basically being beaten and raped by this psycho. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked a little bit about it, but let's talk a little bit about Frank, particularly in this scene. Like, what were your impressions of this I was just thinking, like, what happened to him? <laughs> like, what what brought him here? <laughs> to this moment, yeah. yeah. Well, he's obviously off his tree on drugs. Mm, um, yeah. He's spending the whole scene inhaling amyl nitrates, mm-hmm. like poppers, through a gas mask. It was originally supposed to be helium. Right. That was the idea David Lynch had. But then Dennis Hopper was like, that's going to be too funny. Like, yeah, that's yeah. going to, like, jump the shark. That's yeah. going to be too far. Like, let's make it poppers. <laughs> like, you can't imagine that whole scene, but with him being like, uh, baby wants to fuck. Like, yeah. <laughs> That would, yeah, that would be a, a, a very different tone. Where's my fucking bourbon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mommy! He, somewhat less threatening, yeah. Yeah, he's slapping her around. He, he stuffs her velvet nightgown like, into his mouth. Mm-hmm. He takes some scissors and like cuts bits of it away. Then he well, he basically rapes her. Mm-hmm. But in the most bizarre, like... <laughs> the actual, when he finally penetrates her, and it's like this weird floppy fish kind of spasm that lasts about 10 seconds like mm-hmm. 10 seconds is generous yeah a generous 10 seconds yeah. I'd say 5 pumps yeah basically yeah. I think it's 10 pumps in 5 seconds <laughs> it's pretty funny yeah and so they have this kind of fish spasm orgasm um, <laughs> that's a movie title yeah and then we find out what's going on a little bit Frank has kidnapped her husband and her son and is using them to force her to do all these sexual things for him, basically. And also to force her to kind of cooperate with him and to stay alive and stuff. Because as Carmel Glocken says, I think she wants to die. Mm-hmm. And she all the stuff about when she finds Carmel Glocken in the closet, how, why she kind of tries to seduce him, and then she kind of says, you know, hit me, do what you want with me, do anything you want with me. She's clearly very, very distressed, very traumatised, and definitely has masochistic tendencies where being abused is kind of what gets her off. So mm-hmm. she's kind of found herself in this very dark, twisted situation. But yeah, he then starts kind of visiting her quite regularly and then they do strike up a sexual relationship mm-hmm. at the same time he's also kind of dating Laura Dern mm-hmm. it's an interesting contrast he's getting deeper and deeper into this kind of dark sexual criminal underworld kind of thing he starts following Frank around and photographing him and kind of following his co-criminals one of whom is a man in a yellow jacket who will be important later mm-hmm. the yellow man I think they call him mm-hmm. so about halfway through the film he's visiting Dorothy in her apartment and they're discovered by Frank Yeah, and Frank takes both of them on a joyride with his gang so they're driving through town and they end up at a character called Ben's. Yeah, what, what did you make of Ben? For most of the time, he was my favourite character. Because mm-hmm. he was the only character who seemed to be having his own life, doing his own thing. Because, <laughs> well, everybody else turned up at his his house. Yeah. Like, it kind of felt like he was running a bar. I felt like it was a brothel. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a very specific kind of brothel. But oh, yeah. A brothel. That was the vibe I was getting. Mm, sure, yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he really seemed like the only character who was just his own person, completely mm-hmm. independent of anybody else. Mm-hmm. But everybody else was kind of dependent on someone else. Mm-hmm. And he was just doing his own thing and didn't care for anybody mm-hmm. to be like, fine, Frank, I guess we can have a beer, whatever. <laughs> like, I don't care. 
Um, and I was like, yes, this is exactly the kind of thing that this film needs. I think he was the scariest character in the film. Really? Definitely. In, more in like an unsettling way. Like Frank's really scary because he's so unpredictable. You never know what he's going to do mm. in any given scene. And he's got this real kind of petulant, kind of childlike quality to him in a way because he just has lots of temper tantrums and stuff. Mm-hmm. And obviously because he's always high as a kite, he's like there's lots of screaming and like very quick to anger. Yeah. I really like in a film like this when there's like criminals and villains, when you've got your main villains and then you've got another villain who's, the other villains are scared of him. Mm-hmm. I feel like Frank and all the other villains are scared of Ben, even though Ben doesn't do a lot. Mm-hmm. I feel like Ben is maybe the scariest character in the film. Really? I would say so, yeah. That was the vibe I got. I feel mm-hmm. like he is the Gus Fring of this film. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, okay, he's yeah. calm, but he will fuck shit up. When he lip syncs the Roy Orbison song, <laughs> that is the scariest part of the whole film for me. Really? That is, do you not find that creepy? Oh, not massively. I mean, a bit, but... It's so unsettling. A bit because he's a creepy guy. Yeah, yeah. But rather than that, no, not really. Okay, and the look. I mean, the look is fabulous. Oh, yeah, the look is great. Yeah, because he's wearing, like, this snakeskin leather jacket kind of thing. And Frank keeps saying, you're so fucking suave. He's so suave. How does it get yeah. to be so suave? Yeah. But he's got, like, full, like, Elizabethan, like, makeup on. Like, mm. white face paint makeup. David Lynch is very good at creating these characters where something's just a little bit uncanny mm-hmm. and all the women and the fact that you don't quite know what's going on in this brothel mm-hmm. he seems to be keeping Dorothy's husband and son prisoner for Frank because mm-hmm. they're in the next room aren't they? he yeah. says let tits see a kid which is what he calls her charmingly yeah so I really liked him he's only in it for that one scene but it's very very memorable I think after the baby wants to fuck scene is probably the other the lip sync is probably the other scene of this film that's like iconically famous mm. let's drink up <clears throat> to your health that shit let's drink to something else Let's drink the fucking. Yeah, say, here's to your fuck, Frank. If you like, Frank, here's to your fuck. Cheers. They leave Ben and they carry on driving for a bit and he's Frank's like slapping Dorothy around and Jeffrey makes the mistake of being like, hey, leave her alone, won't you? Mm-hmm. And then Frank really loses it. They like pull over on this like side road. <laughs> There's a very odd scene where he... Uh, <laughs> So first of all, Frank is like, feel my muscles, feel my muscles. Like, yeah. And then he's like, he puts lipstick on and he, like, he starts kissing Jeffrey. Mm-hmm. And then he starts like brutally beating him up. Mm-hmm. Like just beating the shit out of him. While this is happening, um, oh, yeah, this... they put they put another, I think it's another Roy Orbison song, is it maybe? Yeah, I think so. Is it the same Roy Orbison song? Uh, I'm not sure. I think the one that Ben <clears throat> does is In Dreams. I think I think it's Candy Coated Clown or Candy Covered Clown or something. Mm, uh, so, yeah. Anyway, yeah, so there's this other like dreamy 60s pop song is playing. And one of the... I presume hookers from Ben's place is, mm-hmm. who's also like along for the ride just kind of climbs on top of the car roof and just oblivious to anything else that's going on just starts kind of dancing mm-hmm. just having her own time she's just and catches having fun yeah I like that that was, that yeah. was funny again that was just so <laughs> funny and weird and unsettling right? so at this point Jeffrey finally decides it's time to go to the police and tell mm-hmm. the police everything but then he goes to the police station and he recognises the man in the yellow jacket so it's like he realises that it's a police officer who's in cahoots with Frank so mm-hmm. he can't do it there so he ends up going back to telling Sandy's dad in private instead and he says okay leave it with me I'll deal with it yeah and they take Sandy out on a date and uh, there's a little interlude where they go to this little weird party in like a woodhouse cabin or something Mm -hmm. and they have a good old snog to Mysteries of Love by Julie Cruz and then they're leaving and they're driving home and then they get run off the road by what they think is going to be Frank Mm mm-hmm but then it turns out it's Mike, her ex-boyfriend. Mm-hmm. He's like, you stole my girl, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. And he pulls Jeffrey out of the car and he's going to beat him up. 
with that Dorothy, Isabella Rossellini, just appears completely naked, mm-hmm. still wearing the wig. Yeah. This is what yeah. I was like, like, you've had a rough night, but that wig is still... I mean, it's, it was crooked as hell, but it was there. It was still there. It was still... The wig was not removed, but... She had to keep her dignity. She did, yeah, exactly. Like, she's full from... I mean, brave, brave performance. I think Isabella Rossellini's performance of this is so bold. Like, mm, she's yeah. very exposed in this film. But, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I did like the way that Isabella Rossellini just turned up and then the other guys was like, okay, we're going to go. Yeah, I, like, I thought that was really funny too. It was like, he goes from like, I'm going to kill you. And he's like, you know what? You've got bigger problems. I'm yeah. just, just going to back out now. Like, <laughs> like, you do you. Yeah. <laughs> we can talk this over another time. Yeah, this is a, I came at a bad time. You know what? My bad. My, my, my bad. <laughs> it was great. Which I guess kind of makes the whole Laura Dern having a boyfriend thing only a plot point for the sake that at that scene they stopped their car. Basically, yes. That's the only reason. Yeah. The boyfriend wasn't important, but no. <laughs> for that laugh of him just being like, ooh, sorry, like, yeah. it was worth it. One yeah. of my highlights of the film. So they take the still naked Dorothy back into the house because she's like really traumatised. She's doesn't really know where she is. She's bruised and battered. Mm-hmm. And she's like clutching to Jeffrey. And this is where it becomes really obvious to everyone else that she and Jeffrey have had a sexual relationship. And then poor old Laura Dern does the most amazing, like, cry scene. Like, oh, God, it's awful. Really? You think so? Yeah. Did you see her face? Yeah, I loved it. It was so much. It was so weird. She was ugly crying. She was properly <laughs> ugly crying. It was, I really like Laura Dern because she does that a lot in films. She's a very big actress. She does, like, big, big gestures. and mm-hmm. yeah. I thought that was great. Mm-hmm. And I also thought this was a really good scene because this is when, like, it's almost like a film of two halves. Mm. There's the scenes in the, the suburbs where everything's like shiny and happy and she represents all that is good and light in the world and, you know, all her speeches about, you know, the Robins coming home and love and, you know, it's, it's this real picture-perfect 1950s retro thing. Mm-hmm. And then there's all the scenes in the flat and that's like it's a whole different film, you know, where the flat and the nightclub are this place where dark, evil, nasty things happen mm. and there's no kind of crossover. And in this scene, the dark thing kind of invades the light, if you know what I mean. It, mm-hmm. it, it intrudes into the picture-perfect suburban house. I don't know, I, I find it really clever because it, it, the film waits a long time to get to that point and suddenly it's really unsettling. It's like, this, this shouldn't be here. Does that make sense? Yeah. Did you get that as well? Or? I was just thinking, do you think this is the film that Tommy Wiseau tried to make? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he's, he had seen this. Most of it takes place in one room. Mm. All the major scenes happen in this one room. Oh, yeah. And there's the people walking in and out of it all the time, seemingly. You know what? You're right. They are very, very similar films. I mean, with... obviously, there's a there's a lot of things in the room which are not in this, which yes. you know you take out the room because they're just bad writing. Sure. But uh, yeah, is this the good version of the room? Yeah, I think it might. Be. Again, I need to stop this podcast and rewrite my entire single pitch. <laughs> that, that is nail on head. This this film is the room done, like respectably. Mm. Wow. I need to watch it again. What, the room or light. this? No, this. Well, both in a whole new light. Yeah. Mm. They'd be a great double feature, actually. They would, wouldn't they? What a fabulous... Yeah, we should do that. Which one feature. first? Ooh, what, I don't know. Uh, I think I think chronologically, so Blue Velvet, then The Room. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Waitrose Aldi. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, we should do that. That's good. That'd be good. That, although that might be quite difficult to sit through. <laughs> <laughs> Lots the, of beer. They're both difficult films to sit through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just fortify yourself. Have mm. something... Maybe something a bit lighter on either end. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Have them as like, the filling of a... Very bizarre movie sandwich. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey, what's going on here? I'll tell you. Help him. 
Please, may you help him. He put his disease in me. <laughs> so he races back to Dorothy's flat where he finds this really, again, very disturbing scene where the yellow man, the police officer who's been mm. working with Frank, is kind of stood up, but he's, he's got like a massive head wound. He's either been shot or he's been beaten or something. Mm. Is he dead or is he kind of just... Well, I think he's severely brain damaged at that point. Yes. Like his head wound, like you can see his brain. You can see the brain, yeah. So, yeah, I've assumed that he's been shot and it's just sort of taken off the side of his mm. head, essentially. Mm. And then also the one-eared guy who is Dorothy's husband. Who mm. put, you thought it was Ben? He just looked very pale. Okay, sure. Well, he's dead. I get it, yeah. Basically, the yellow man and a one-eared corpse, uh, which is Dor- we assume to be Dorothy's husband, are... Also, the, the ear wound still look quite fresh. Well, then what do you think the time frame of this film is, though? I do not know. I think this film takes place over a couple of days. I don't think it's a long journey. Okay, sure. So, mm. But yeah, you're right, it does. Mm. Maybe that was the other ear. Maybe he took both off before the end. I don't know. Well, I was wondering if it was a um, weird David Lynch thing of just, like, sort of bookending the film, as in, like... So you found an ear and you lost an ear. Yeah. They weren't the same ear. <laughs> ears disappearing everywhere. Mm. He tries to escape, but then he sees Frank coming back. Mm. So he hides in the closet again. Mm-hmm. And Frank comes in. There's like a long scene of Frank like looking around the flat for him because he knows he's in there and there's lots of monologuing. And... Kind of like he's placed the police radio in the back room. He's had a police radio the whole time, hasn't he? That's mm. how he knows where Jeffrey is and that's mm-hmm. how Jeffrey figures out he misdirects him. Yeah, he does something that's very intense because I thought it was the wrong decision. Obviously, he places the walkie-talkie in the back room mm-hmm. and says, I'm hiding in the back room, and does that. And that's good. And then he goes and gets the gun out of... Uh, no, he get, doesn't get the gun at that point. He should have done, That's yeah. what he should have done, um, yeah. But uh, I don't think that hiding in the closet was necessarily the best thing to do. Because he knows that Frank is going to come in and search the whole apartment. Sure. And probably have a gun. Yeah. And then definitely have a gun when he starts shooting a gun in the back room. Mm-hmm. Just like at the bed or something, we assume. So he goes out, grabs this gun, and then goes back in the closet. And I'm thinking, well, if Frank thinks you're in the closet, he's just going to shoot the closet. He's not going to yeah. open the door. Well, thankfully. And, and like, even if that wasn't the case, that's still a high risk. Oh, yeah. Very high risk. Just hide somewhere else. <laughs> hide, like, just behind the corner. He walks around, get him in the head. Sure. Simple. Mm-hmm. Oh, he took way too long to shoot him. Yeah, because also, yeah, like, Frank <laughs> opened the door. There's a solid five seconds oh, yeah. before... Anybody shoots. Mm-hmm. And they're both pointing guns at each other. And it's not like a standoff or anything. No one wants anything from each other. No. Apart, I mean, he's ne- apart from each other dead. True. He's never taken a life before. I don't know. True. But what about Frank? Oh, yeah. Frank could have killed him. Frank's been shooting for yeah. the last minute. Mm, true. But anyway, so Jeffrey shoots Frank in the head. Literally blows his brains out. It's mm. quite a violent shot. And uh, yeah. Thus, happy ending. The film then ends where we get the... Well, Dorothy gets reunited with her son. Mm-hmm. We get a scene of them like together. Like she's hugging him and stuff. Mm. And then Jeffrey's dad recovers. We see him like back in the garden, looking mm-hmm. well. Uh, and Jeffrey and Sandy end up together, it seems. And mm-hmm. so he, we see him like waking up in the garden. He's like sunbathing. And then there's the great, great, great closing shot of the film, where they go into the kitchen, and it's like, look, the robins. And then there's like a tight close up of this awful looking like animatronic bird. It's, it's worse than the one in Mary Poppins. Yeah. And that film came out in what the thirties, was it? The sixties. The sixties. Yeah. <laughs> Set in the 30s. Set in the 30s, yeah. How old do you think Julie Andrews is? Because you know she's still alive. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's old. She's old, but yeah. Dick Van Dyke is also still alive. Right? He's old. Yeah, but 30s. Not many people who were, were like acting as adults in the 30s are still alive today. Well, let's see. Let's say they were in their 20s and the 30s. And what would they be now? They'd be the early 100s? Yeah. Could be possible. It's, it's not impossible. Olivia de Havilland's still alive. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. 
She's like the only one. But, yeah. Yeah, there we go. So Mary Poppins could be she filmed could. in the 30s. Julie Andrews is not that old, though. She's like in her 80s. Yeah, yeah. But anyway. 80s, but yeah. early 100s. What's the difference? I mean, at that point, yeah, you're just on bonus time. But yeah. Whatever. But yeah, what did you think of that ending? I couldn't not notice the fake Robin. It's it's so fake. But I think it's supposed to... And it's got like a bug in its mouth as well. Yeah, yeah. I think it's supposed to be like fakey, fakey. Like it, it adds to that whole kind of ridiculousness of the perfect suburban scenes. Like mm. if it was a real Robin, it'd just be like, oh, okay. But because it's really fakey, it's like... I wonder if it's a whistler song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's got the bug in its mouth and Aunt Beverly, whatever she's called, kind of, or Aunt Barbara kind of goes, oh, I could never do that. He's a bug. <laughs> You're like, no one's asking you to. <laughs> it's a Robin. <laughs> what do you think uh, of it? <laughs> And then I think the last line of the film is Laurie Dern going, it's a strange world. <laughs> That's not a strange thing. <laughs> no, but I mean, she's just talking generally about the world. You know? I think if there's like a coda for this film, like okay, a yeah. poster tagline, it's a strange world, yeah. is pretty much it. Yeah. So, yeah, and Fuss ends the film. Great. Any final thoughts? It's going to be a, a long while before I watch this again. Okay, but you're not writing it off. No, not writing it off. Because when we did Spice World, you were like, I can't wait to never watch that film again. Yeah. This one, you will, you may watch again, but just yeah. not, not, not like tomorrow. No. Okay, we're making progress. Mm. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, I saw him outside. Maybe Robins were here. I don't see how they could do that. I could never eat a bug. It's a strange world. So, drinking games? Yeah, sure. Okay. So my first is a regular one of mine sometimes. Drink for product placement. Ooh, I was Because, my God, the product placement in this was heavy-handed. <laughs> I'm guessing I know where you're going with this. Um, so it starts off with, uh, oh, what are you drinking there? Oh, it's Heineken. Oh, that's nice. What, oh, so what are you drinking? Oh, I'm drinking Bud. King of beers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That was an entire scene. Oh, yeah. Totally. Nothing, nothing else. Nothing else, yeah. One of my drinking games is drink whenever anyone has a strong opinion about a beer brand. There's <laughs> even a point where Colin McLaughlin's peeing and he goes, Heineken. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they really got their money back. <laughs> Although, not entirely positively, because I think there's a scene where Frank says, what are you drinking? And then Colin McLaughlin says, Heineken. And he goes, fuck Heineken. So... <laughs> Yeah, 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 and they're all like, "Yeah, blue label or yeah. something else." Although, to be fair, that being said, even though that's not necessarily a positive statement about Heineken, I think if you are looking at the character of Frank, you're not looking like I want to drink what he's drinking. Mm, yeah. So, I think if him not liking Heineken isn't necessarily a a problem for Heineken. Mm. So, man, I like Heineken. You like Heineken? Uh, well, I never really had Heineken before. You never had Heineken before? My dad drinks Bud. Of beers. Heineken. What kind of beer do you like? Heineken. Heineken? Fuck that shit! Okay, drink for the word fuck. Yep, that would be a productive one. I had drink for heavy handed symbolism. There's a lot of strong symbolism in this movie. Go on. Well, as first there's the blue velvet curtain, which is like, it's, it's a play, it's not real. Mm-hmm. And then there's where it pans from the lawn down to the bug scrolling under the lawn. There's a, quite a few scenes where every time Cam O'Clockin goes a little bit darker, like when he when he punches Isabella Rossellini or hits her, you see literal flames on screen. Well, I think that we've got the same drinking game here, mm-hmm. but uh, you've done it in a complimentary way, okay. and I have not. Okay, what's your so I, I've this? said drink for unnecessary sound effects and arty shots. Oh, sure, yeah. Because <laughs> there's a sound of like very, very strong, scary 
wind that sounds like people screaming mm. with the shot of a candle slowly being blown out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lots of that. Yeah. I think the first, before you even meet Laura Dern's character, you see it, there's like a tight close-up of a picture of her and then like mm-hmm. it zooms outwards from that picture. Mm, so, yeah. yeah, that's a, that's a style that he has, definitely. And yeah, the, the score as well is definitely like quite full on. Mm-hmm. Like the whole film is this kind of weird, like light beat jazz kind of vibe running through the whole thing. It's like... Dee-dee-dee. Some of it does, yeah. And that's weird. Yeah. But then when it's not doing that, it's, it'll be like... It's like it'll be very like full on and like its own character. Like it's telling you how to feel. So yeah. Drink for Blue Velvet. Okay. Both yeah. well, So so on screen and said out loud. On screen in terms of like visuals of Blue Velvet, but also whenever the song is played. Mm-hmm. It happens a lot. Isabella Rossellini's character is a nightclub singer. Mm. We see multiple occasions of Kyle McLaughlin uh, visiting her at the nightclub or watching her perform. Yeah. Is that the only song she ever sings? Yeah. Seems to be. I, I hope it's a long one because, like, I'd be bored. Well, it's not. It's like a two-minute anyway. song. It's like a six, 1950s songs are really short. Yeah, like what's her set? I don't know. Like, you think people be like, mix it up, bitch? Like, yeah. <laughs> I really want. To, I would really love to see like as an extended scene where she finishes that song and you know, everyone claps and claps and claps, and then she kind of just goes, "Well, you make me want to shout with my hands up and shout," <laughs> or like, "Does he love me? I want to know." Like that. That in itself would be pretty hilarious so yes that would but yeah it seems like she has built an entire nightclub act around just singing the same song mm-hmm. every night on stage ladies and gentlemen the blue lady miss dorothy valens Whenever the radio talks about felling trees. Oh yeah. Well, the town is called Lumberton. Is it now? Oh, which is a great name for like a <laughs> fakey, fakey like sixties, mm-hmm. fifties town. Yeah, I really like that. Uh, yeah, I had that for radio jingles, too. just for the radio jingles as well, or any sounds like a radio DJ or announcer like sounding really cheesy. It's mm-hmm. like how much wood could a woodchuck chuck? Yeah. Find out after the break. <laughs> Sunny, woodsy day in Lumberton, so get those chainsaws out. This is the mighty W-O-O-D, the musical voice of Lumberton. At the sound of the falling tree, it's 9.30. There's a whole lot of wood waiting out there, so let's get going. Okay, so at this point we now talk about Patreon for a little bit. So, if you would like to support the show in any way, by any way, I really only mean money. Um, I hope that's all right. <laughs> if you'd like to donate as much or as little as you like, $2, $15,000, anything in between, then go to patreon.com slash set. And for no matter how much you donate, you get every bonus thing we do, which includes a bonus show called Beyond Beyond the Box Set, mm-hmm. where each week we review a film that's in a cinema right now. Uh-huh. And what else do we do? Once a month, we will also do a 30-second advert slot for you, which could be for anything. Could be your own podcast, could be your own business, could be somebody else's podcast or business, you know, something you like. Could be a TV show you like. Like, uh, maybe this week I might want to advertise Glow. 
Okay. It's Glow's a really good TV show. It's on Netflix, made by the same people as Orange is New Black. Would really highly recommend it. They've just released season two. I've just finished it. It's really good fun. See, really lovable characters. I know you've not watched it all the way through. I don't know why. See, I'm halfway through season one. Mm. And, like, everybody loves it. And I feel like I'm a crazy person. Because I really like Alison Brie. I think she's delightful. I think a lot of the other characters are, you know, well acted and are delightful. It's just, is it me? Or is it just every episode I'm just watching people rehearse? That is the plot of the first season, yeah. Yeah, but it's just like, I'm, I'm just watching people rehearsing for a sport I don't have any interest in. And it's just kind of like... When is something going to happen? <laughs> See, normally when we advertise for our patrons, I do the advertising, not John. Sure. this exact for this exact reason. No, I really want to like it because it has so many good elements. I'm just like, I'm bored. Do something. Something needs to happen in this show. I've been watching you for eight episodes, just rehearsing. Well, stuff happens. I don't remember what happens in season one. I'll give you a hint. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing happens. In episode one, Alison Brie and Betty Gilpin fall out. Episode eight, they still don't like each other. We get it. Oh, that's the plot of the whole series. Yeah. Season oh. two, the, the end of season two, they're still pretty much at oh, that. For God's but... sake, just fucking resolve it. Oh, no, they don't, but it gets better. It gets, okay. It's good drama. It's like a soap opera, but it's good. But I like a soap opera, but they're not doing it. They're just not talking to each other. There's no, like, cattiness, or it's just like... Oh, they talked to her a lot in season two. Okay. I'm sure it gets better, but I'm just waiting for something to happen. Mm-hmm. Oh, you've got a lot ahead of you. Once a month, we'll have a Patreon guest on the show, and they can choose the film that we will cover. So if you have a film you'd like to hear us talk about and make sequels for me on the box set, just let us know, and we will do it for you. And if you'd like to be on as a guest, we will happily have you, as long as you have Skype or are willing to travel and have recording equipment so we can mm-hmm. make it sound good. We would very much like to have you on the show. Also, if there's a film that you like that is not suitable for Beyond the Box set, because it already has sequels or it's part of a franchise... Or you just think it wouldn't really work on the main show, but you'd like to hear our thoughts on it, let us know and we'll record it as a bonus feature for our bonus show Beyond Beyond the Box Set where we review films and other things. Mm -hmm. So all that and more. More being we've started a new Facebook group recently for all our our patron supporters to uh, kind of come together, say hi to each other and get a little bit of a sort of behind the scenes on the show with our upcoming plans and, and stuff. Indeed. So yes, all that is available um, at patreon.com slash beyond the box set. Yes. Hey, Drew, what are you doing Wednesdays? Wednesdays? You know, specifically on Wednesdays, I watch movies. Oh, I like to talk about movies. You want to talk about them? Talk about them? Why don't we record? Talk oh my about gosh, them? like a podcast. Definitely like a podcast. Ah, and we could have the reels and the feels. But what would we call it? How about the Real Feels Podcast. I love we can, it. We can talk about the best parts of the movies, the worst parts of the movies, our favorite lines. Every other Wednesday? On like Podbean and iTunes? I'll see you there. All right, it will be the realest. The feelest. Okay, so some sequels. Yes. You're first this week, I believe. Mm-hmm. I know you've come well prepared, so I'm excited to hear this. Well, you're probably going to help me in the second half of this idea. Sure. So, do you remember the ants from the film... Ants. Oh, the yeah, the animated film from like 1999. That's the one. Jennifer Lopez in that. Yeah, she is actually. Yeah, so you did know who she was then? No. Okay. She, she's a minor voice actor in a film I saw a while back. Okay, so Ants. With yes, a Z, this one is called Blue Velvet and Ants Perspective. It's still spelled with a Z. I'm intrigued. Okay. We'll see where this goes. I have genuinely no idea. <laughs> I like the idea though. Okay, so for unknown reasons and by unknown means. 
They have uh, always a promising start. <laughs> <laughs> what well, is in keeping with this film? True, true, true. I mean, I, I could go through every tiny little detail of how. Yeah. So th- they are no longer in Central Park. Okay. And they are now in some small town somewhere else in America for. Oh, the ants from the film Ants, you mean? Yeah. Okay, sure. So it's going to be all the same characters. So we're getting Woody Allen back. We're getting Sylvester Stallone and J-Lo. You know, that couple that's gone down in history. Okay. It was Sylvester Stallone? Yeah, it was. <laughs> wow. Wow, that was oh, that's a very of-its-time choice. Yep. As is Woody Allen at this point, but sure. Go on. Oh, yeah. So they're building a new colony. Um, in what was so, so Sylvester Stallone, it's been such a long time. Sylvester Stallone and Jennifer Lopez were a couple in that film. Yeah. And what was Woody Allen's character? He was a sort of adventure nerd sort of thing. Like a best friend? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was Sylvester Sloan's best friend. Okay. Um, and J-Lo's co-worker. And so him and Sly, they swapped places. Uh, but Sylvester Sloan was like, he was a soldier. Okay. And Woody Allen was a worker. So, I see, okay. So Woody Allen was like digging into a new cave or something, whatever. While uh, Sylvester Sloan was going out and fighting other colonies. Sure. Like termites or something. Uh-huh. And uh, they swapped places for a day just to see what would happen. And uh, the army went out to battle. Everyone died apart from Woody Allen. Uh, meanwhile, Sylvester Sloan uh, gets to a J-Lo. Okay. Guess if this is DreamWorks or Disney. It's def- this is definitely DreamWorks. I remember distinctly because obviously but this is like the knockoff of Bugs Life, right? The yeah, the yeah it was the same year. Why did this film of all films crop into your head with this? Well, there's a lot of bugs. Okay. And I was thinking, well, let's just go somewhere completely different because I clearly can't do anything with the plot of this film that I just don't understand. Okay. So I'm just going to do something else and tie it in loosely. Okay. So is it are there, are there any other characters from Ants that we need to reintroduce, or is it just Woody Allen, Sylvester Sloan, and J-Lo? Just these three, really. Okay, sure. I thought, thought I'd keep it fairly simple for a film that's not okay. that well known. So, plot twist, Ants took place in the mid-80s. When did this take place? The mid-80s. Oh, no, the mid-50s, sorry, the 50s, yeah. I mean, it was shot in the 80s, but set in the 50s, I, I guess. I mean, do, do you know when Ants took place? I, don't, I can't remember if there any, any humans in it. There's one human who steps on him, but there's no sort of, like, product placement on his shoes or anything. So. Okay, sure. Yeah, if, if, if you can make it work, sure. I mean, you've got quite a f- blank check at this point, because my memory of Ants is very dim. Good, that's what I was going for. You were hoping, yes. <laughs> I can do anything. Yeah, I remember that... Is that the film where the two wasps and the female wasp gets killed? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the only scene I really remember. Mm-hmm. Okay, continue. Cool. You've ruined our ants episode, our forthcoming episode on the <laughs> ants. Or maybe that'll be a blue velvet time. <laughs> Just, it gets real kinky. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Okay, so they're building a colony in this new place that they've moved to. Sure. And uh, every ant has to put in as much effort as they can to build the colony as fast as they can so they can hide from the local bullies. Okay. The local bullies are going to be a pack of beetles known as the lumberjackers. Oh, I see. Lumbertown, Jackers. Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay, mm-hmm. good. Yeah, everybody, including all the soldiers, they're all working double shifts to dig enough space for them all to hide in. And so Z, which is Woody Allen's character, mm-hmm. the main character, along with uh, Weaver, who is Sylvester Stallone. I think I might use actors' names, though. Yeah, um, it's probably for the best, yeah. So they're working on making the structure of the entrance. Oh, and also, uh, whatever her name is, Jelo. Azteca. Her name was Azteca? Yeah. Wow. She was not a main character. She was in this, but... Yeah. Well, I mean, her star was very much still on the rise in 1999, you know. Yeah. So yeah, those three, am- amongst others, are working on um, making the main entrance a bit stronger, so if any beetles walk on it, they don't fall into it and discover the colony. Okay. One thing leads to another, and because Z is probably checking out some, some girl somewhere, that's what his character was like, 
Um, that's the Stallone character, right? No, no, that's Woody Allen. So, because Woody Allen was chucking out some girl. How old were these girls? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> were they related to him directly by any chance? <laughs> he strikes the wrong wall. Allegedly, allegedly. He, he strikes the wrong wall with his axe, and the whole entrance comes tumbling down, blocking the entrance to the cave. Okay. So they manage to climb out, and uh, they're surrounded by all the ants that were outside, and uh, they're all just looking quite angrily at, at, at these three. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, well, you've broken the entrance. Like, how are we going to get in there now? We've got to take us ages to dig out of this. Mm-hmm. And then the ground starts to rumble. Okay. And uh, someone shouts, it's the Beatles! Not the band. Not the famous 60s beat pop band, no. I've been spelling it the wrong way throughout most of this. Sure. Yeah, and so everybody runs away in one direction, and Z's like, wait a minute, if they're going in that direction, we should go in this direction. So they then lynch us. Don't know why lynch is on my mind. How dark was Ants? <laughs> Lynching? <laughs> well, I'm crossing it over with this. Oh, sure, yeah. So, you know. Woody Allen takes Fuster Sloan and J-Lo, and they run in a different direction to everybody else. Okay. Um, partly to get away from everybody else, but partly because Woody Allen's a bit hungry, and he can smell it with a meaty smell. Sure. So... They run towards the smell, and they're running, and they, they see that there's some beetles behind them chasing them. Mm-hmm. And they eventually find this piece of meat. They climb onto it. And uh, just as that happens, all the beetles stop and then run in the opposite direction. Okay. And Woody Allen's like, yeah, we did it. We beat them, or whatever. And uh, then they turn around, and they see just a massive hand come down and pick up what they're on, which is an ear. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh, okay. <laughs> and the puts it in a bag. Made. Okay. Um... <laughs> <laughs> do you like my titan <laughs> for, for all due respect that that is, that is pretty brilliant <laughs> I always think about doing something like this right? it's something just so small such a yeah. tiny tiny connection to a film okay. just like oh my god there were some bugs on that that very <laughs> insignificant piece of plot at the very start of the film I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a whole film about that <laughs> so here it is great the bag doesn't get opened up for ages, and uh, when it does, there's a completely different light. So they're in a different place, obviously. Sure. And uh, there's a giant face peering into it. And the guy says, yep, that's an ear, <laughs> in a very deep, booming voice. Uh, that was my best deep, booming voice. Can you do that with editing? I think you might need to... Give, give me some more to work with. Give me, give me another take. Yep, that was an ear. Now make that echo. Oh, I see. Okay. That, that'll sound good. And then the bag gets closed again. And so then Woody Allen says, okay, I vote that next time this bag is opened, even slightly, we make a run for it. We don't know when it's going to be opened again. So they hang around in the bag for a bit and all getting bored and snacking on dead human ear. <laughs> Delicious. Mm. Um, and then mm, the bag is opened. Frontal lobe. <laughs> <laughs> then, then the bag is opened and uh, the ear is lifted out of the bag and placed on a cold metal slippery surface while a few large faces stare at it. So the ants try and make their escape. Okay. Woody Allen climbs down onto the metal and instantly slips over. Okay. So the joke of this is it's kind of going to be like ice. Oh, okay. And so when Sylvester Sloan and J-Lo get down onto it, they're complete naturals and they do a couple's ice skating routine. Sure. While Woody Allen is still trying to stand up and keeps falling over. Just like all six legs just splaying in all directions. Pretty much, Great. yeah. Okay, yeah. sure. Charming. Yep, thought that'd be fun. Mm-hmm. They eventually, after that scene, they managed to make their way down to the sort of plug hole part of this, the drain of this table. Mm-hmm. It's a coroner's table, they have a drain. Sure. Where they find a whole city of just bugs and insects and disgusting life that's just feeding off all the stuff that's coming down that drain. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, let's, let's not talk about what all that stuff might be. <laughs> but uh, I'm talking about the bugs love it. And so there, there's, there's a thriving social life. There's clubs, there's bars, there's all kinds of attractions. 
Um, I was thinking it could be a musical number here. Great. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe J-Lo and Sylvester Sloan have a little duet. Oh, God. I don't know if he has much of a voice. Like, <laughs> she's going to have to do a lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> don't go breaking my heart. Really? And then carries on like that. Sure, okay. Not doing his bit. I thought that you were doing her bit then. <laughs> you gravitate towards the female vocals. Well, after a night of uh, heavy drinking, they decide they need to get back to the colony. And so they decide to catch the next human out of here, which they found. Catch the next human out of here. Which they found out is the best mode of transport. Oh, I see. Okay. They're catching the next train because how else are they going to get around? Oh, okay. It makes sense. Yeah. So the next morning they got the next human out of the morgue. And what I was planning was that they merged with a few of the scenes from Blue Velvet. Totally. But in a way that they meet a few characters, they somehow find their way back to the colony. I was thinking that maybe they, they're in the car when Frank beats up Jeffrey and kisses Jeffrey. And sure. That they're in the car at that point and that's where they, get, that's where they leave. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, it's really close to a colony. That's convenient. And that's when they get away. Yeah, and that's, that, that's when they get away. By this point, they've met up with a few characters, maybe some bigger characters, like a cockroach or something, who they've made friends with due to some things. Mm-hmm. Expand on that, if you would. Okay. So, <laughs> no, I like this. This is good. Uh, I think that the way out should be through the police chief. Mm-hmm. Maybe, like, the next day or something. So they spent the night in the coroner's He's the room. next connection, really, from the coroner's yeah, place yeah. to anywhere else. So the next, day, the next day he comes back in and he's got, like, his lunch bag or something. Mm-hmm. His pat lunch. Okay, yeah. And yeah. they're like, let's go into that thing. Yeah. And then from that, they ride back to his house that night. Mm-hmm. And we think, oh, this could be quite a cool place to live. Mm. But then maybe because it's this, like, pristine 50s kind of, you know, almost model home kind mm-hmm. of thing, maybe the mother of the house is, like, very, like... Very clean. Very clean and cleanly. Yeah. Maybe they see, like, there's other ants that are living in the house and then they, they befriend them. But then she, like, comes... They see some of them getting, like, sprayed with, like, some kind of disinfectant or something. Yeah, well, I was thinking what well, my grandma used to... Because, like, was... in the main Ants film, by the way, like, in, in, in those battle scenes I mentioned, mm. a character gets decapitated. Oh, my God. That character is still alive for, like, minutes afterwards. Jesus. Like, Woody Allen picks him up in his hands. The, the film is dark. I need to rewatch Ants. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't remember that at all. I must have blocked it. But I remember my my, my, grand, my dear departed grandma, rest in peace, used to kill all the ants in her um, house by she would pour boiling water on them. Okay. Which I think is quite a common way of dealing with, but is, mm, freaked me out. Yeah. So yeah, maybe she, maybe this housewife from this house is the same. Maybe they meet some like friendly like domestic ants, mm-hmm. but then she like looms over with like a huge like kettle of boiling water and like... Again, if, if these films are dark, maybe there's a Hoover involved. Yeah, all okay, yeah, just yeah. She's just she's just this tyrant, this giant tyrant, mm-hmm. and they're like this. This place is a death trap. We can't stay here. Maybe they meet a mouse who's terrified of the cat. Or something. Sure. Mouse called Jerry. Oh, we're really crossing it over. Okay. Mm. <laughs> there's a really <laughs> spitball in here. Sure. Yeah. There's, there's there's a really racist caricature of a maid that you can see from the ankle <laughs> up. Um, maybe when Jeffrey comes over the next night to kind of try and get some more information. They're like, okay, mm-hmm. let's hit you around on him because anything's better than this hellhole. Yeah, yeah. And through that, they end up in Isabella Rossellini's flat. Mm-hmm. And then they jump out there and then they witness all the scenes. And they're like, Okay, so where are they witnessing it from? What do they find in the flat? Who do they meet in the flat? So they're in the flat. They climb out of his pocket maybe while he's hiding in the closet. Sure. And okay, so, so maybe they're in the closet as well there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe, they're, maybe they're all like lined up on one of the slats. So, yeah, like, they're all just at, like watching. At, at his eye line as well, as though they're all watching together. Exactly, yeah. And they're like, there's some fucked up shit going on in this Maybe, maybe he's done on it, but he's just sort of, he's like, yeah. I, I can't care about this. He has bigger issues yeah. than the fact there's some ants, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's where they meet like a friendly cockroach or something. Mm-hmm. Pest control can be brought into this <gasps> somehow. Um, oh, but he's already done that though. 
Yeah, maybe the cockroach just tells a story about, like, he had a family. Oh, yeah, he's got a tragic backstory. Yeah. And Cal McLaughlin was the one who killed his whole family. Yeah. With the petrol. It and, all uh, ties uh, together so well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And so that's the cockroach they meet. So so then he's like, well, I've got nothing waiting for me here anymore. Like, it's, it's nothing worth living for. Yeah, let's hatch an escape. Yeah. If the cockroach is going to be a major character, mm-hmm. who's playing him? Ooh, um, a depressed cockroach. A depressed cockroach. Bill Murray? Yes. Yep. <laughs> you sound very sold on that. Nailed it. Okay, so Bill Murray is a depressed cockroach. It does fit really well. Mm-hmm. So they want to get out of this, this apartment any way they can. They get onto Frank, mm-hmm. into a pocket or something. Sure. Or on his shoe, well, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think of cockroaches. No, Bigger than ants. Yeah. yeah maybe they, cl- they ride on the cockroaches' back and that's how they'll move around a bit faster. Okay, sure. But they're with Frank. Yeah. And so what happens next from this point? Maybe they sneak into his pocket or something at the time when he kidnaps Jeffrey and Mm -hmm. Dorothy. So then they're part of the joyride. Because he seems like he's the kind of character who's... Well, not notice a cockroach climbing into his pocket. Actually, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense because then that joyride leads them back to, well, not necessarily back to where they were, but for convenience sake, let's say that's near enough to where the colony was. Sure. And so then from there, they're going to go to find where the colony was, find the ants. By this point, the colony has been destroyed completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope. The, the Beatles. Okay. <laughs> it's never not funny. I don't know why. <laughs> like the insects came before the band. But, yeah, I know. But, they got really upstaged. So yeah, the colony's been destroyed and uh, the ants have left like a message or something, like an arrow maybe pointing in this direction. Sure. And they go there and they find that the ants are having their last stand. Now think of Lord of the Rings, I forget which battle it is, but the one where they think all hope's lost and then suddenly Gandalf runs down a hill with like a flock of horses behind him or something. That's all of them, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Lord of the Rings fans will know what I'm talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. And so there's essentially like a battle happening between mm-hmm. the ants and the beetles. The ants are all about to lose. And at this last minute, Woody Allen and his gang with a cockroach come in and okay. they, they save the day. They okay. fight the fight the beetles off. Okay. The beetles all run away and uh, the film closes as a robin swoops down and grabs one of the beetles in its mouth. Oh, I see. Okay, it does all it come together. off and then becomes the, the, clo- the closing shot of the first movie. Perfect. Yeah, that's good. And I like how the happy ending for the ants comes at the darkest moment of the actual film when, like, Jeffrey's just being, like, brutally beaten in the mm. background. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I mean, you took a roll of the dice there. <laughs> you made some choices, but... You know what, I'm bored. You know what, I'm on board. I think David Lynch would be on board, too. <laughs> He needs a cameo in this. Yeah, he, maybe he could voice someone. Just, just one of the characters in the uh, in the nightclubs. Sure, yeah, a small a small role, yeah. just as a little bit of a handover. Oh, uh, maybe there's a cinema happening in in that city. An insect cinema. Yeah. Okay. And uh, is there, are there any puns, insect based puns we could have on his name or any of his work? Uh... Oh, instead of the Elephant Man, something else. Earwig. Oh, there we go. The Earwig Man. The Earwig Man. The Earwig Man, directed by David Lynch. The perfect, earwig. perfect. Got it. Love it. Okay. Love it. Maybe there's lots of earwigs outside looking very unhappy. Yes. Protesting like, the film. This is cultural appropriation. Yes, exactly. <laughs> perfect, yeah. I like it. Okay, well, this is Cameo, essentially. Cool. Yeah, and that, that, that pretty much wraps it up. That was, uh, what, what do they call that? Blue Velvet and Ant's Perspective. 
Blue and Velvet and Ants Perspective. Ants spelled with a Z. Of course, yeah, because that's Y two K. Okay, I like it. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, you took you took a big swing and it just about hit. So yeah. <laughs> risky. Yes, could have gone either way, but I think you mm-hmm. did. Yeah. Okay, very good. I'll try to match that in some way, if I possibly can. Good luck. I've done a few small ideas this week, and okay. we'll see where they go. Okay. Maybe nowhere. We'll see. First of all, now, I'm aware we've done this a lot recently. Mm-hmm. I'm aware that uh, we've, we've been down the Breaking Bad route quite a few times. It's becoming a bit of a crutch. Have we done it a few times? We we did. I, I know it was last week, but... Yeah. I don't know, I feel like it's verging on Truman Show territory. Okay. If you do it twice in a week, then it is, technically... Although you didn't do it last week, so I guess not. Yeah. That being said, okay. So, I did think that my... I'd love it if you'd done that whole thing and said, like, so I'm not going to do Breaking Bad. (laughs) No. So, my first idea is a prequel TV series Mm -hmm. called Better Call Ben. Okay. Well, that's not Breaking Bad. No, it's in that universe. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, one of the things about this film is that all of the characters are so memorable and interesting. Mm -hmm. And you could really do a prequel about pretty much any one of them. Yeah. And certainly Ben is a character that I found particularly interesting. That's the Dean Stockwell character. It's a prequel based on the relationship between him and Frank. And like, what's their story? Mm. Like, how do they become friends, co-workers, etc.? It's going to focus on Ben. He's going to be the main character as this kind of weird, gender ambiguous kind of villain. You know, mm-hmm. maybe he starts not a villain, but maybe he gets more villainous. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Frank's going to be part of it. You can bring in Isabella Rossellini while she's still with her husband because her husband is a drug dealer in the film, so he is kind of a criminal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those two as kind of a power couple in the crime world or something. Maybe she's always been a bit fucked up in the head. Wait, sorry, Isabella Rossellini and her husband? Her husband in the original film is a petty drug dealer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. This sorry, I was thinking of a sequel. Of course not. No, no, this is a prequel. Yep. So. But that is mentioned in the film, that she was married to a drug dealer, and that's how he got okay. mixed up in their world. Okay. It's going to bring in the yellow man. How does he... You know, he's going to be the police, the corrupt police officer. Mm-hmm. We're going to find out what the hell's going on with all those old prostitutes in Ben's brothel, <laughs> like how he sets that whole business up. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a big part of it. Uh, I like the idea that it might start with Frank as a very mild-mannered kind of character as well. So is this going to explain what happened to him? Yeah, it's going to be like the... The rise of Ben and the fall of Frank, basically. Okay, yeah, I like it. Yeah, I think that could be good. So wait, at this point, is Ben off the rails a bit? Not, like, crazy, crazy, but he's not really got everything together. I think it's going to be his rise from, like, an underdog kind of, uh, an up-and-coming criminal to, like, a criminal kingpin. I think the idea is that that character is, like, the scariest character in the film, so... How he becomes, like, the top dog of this, whatever's going on, whatever crown syndicate is happening at this time. To be time. fair, he's the only person in the film who's not scared of Frank. Indeed, that's what I mean. And Frank seems a little bit scared of him, so, mm. yeah. I like that. I like, the, I like the idea that they've had, like, a complicated history. Maybe they've had, like, a bit of a relationship in the past, you never mm-hmm. know. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that could be good. Who would you... I mean, they're going to be younger, so who, who would play, like, a young Ben and a young Frank, do you think, in this kind of TV show? A young Ben, I, I really don't know. It could be a lot of people, because... Mm-hmm. His face specifically wasn't that descriptive. Well, it's was, so was, much makeup. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because there's a lot of makeup on there. Mm. So, yeah, there's a lot of people you could cast as him. Mm-hmm. So many that can't really make a choice. Sure. A young Dennis Hopper is a tough choice, though. That is a tough choice. Who comes into films these days who's a bit younger than that and, like, chews all of the scenery in the in a good way, not in a James Corden way, in a really good way? See, my go-to is Neil Patrick Harris, but he's just too flamboyant. I think he'd be a good Ben. He would be a good Ben. He'd be a great Ben, mm. yeah. What's the age difference, do you reckon, between these two? Oh, in between Ben and Frank? Or? Yeah, about the same? Or? I feel like they're about the same age, yeah. Okay. Well, actually, Neil Patrick Harris is, he's got quite a wide age range that you can play. Sure. He As was... we've seen in um, Lemony Snicket. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I mean, like, he could pass for much younger than he actually is, I think. How old is he? I think he's in his 40s. I, w- I wouldn't buy him as a 20-something, but... I buy him as, like, late 20s as a push. And that's... So that's a good push with flattering lighting, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look at Better Call Saul guy, what's his name? Bob Odenkirk. Yeah, when he's, pl- when he's playing, like, a young 20-something <laughs> in that show. That is... It's not particularly Some of the convincing. worst. Yeah. Okay. Based purely on physical resemblance, because I've mm-hmm. just Googled Dennis Hopper Young. <gasps> Me too. <laughs> You've not watched Mad Men yet, have you? No. There's a, an actor called Vincent Carfacia, mm-hmm. who plays Pete Campbell in Mad Men. I think he would work. I will take your word for it. Sure. In the, in the interest of moving along. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so yeah, and that's basically it. I think it's just like a, a prequel of their kind of you know, how they come to, like, become the drug kingpins of this little, pretty little town and all mm-hmm. of the adventures they have along the way. Mm-hmm. And it maybe ends, like, the final season is, like, runs parallel to the film. Because it's more, it's more Ben's story than Frank's story. Okay. But we see how Frank falls apart well, and maybe, how Ben... Maybe we could do it as Ben is kind of, like, protégé of Frank. Yeah. But then as Frank gets more crazy... Ben, ben steps ben, in. Ben, ben keeps his cool and he steps in and he kind of takes over and, you know, Frank goes off and does his own thing and Ben is still, just, like, controlling the Empire... Mm-hmm. Frank still feels like he has a part of it, but he recognises that Ben's in charge. Sure. And so then kind of the roles swap. Mm-hmm. And so then the protégé becomes the... What? The protégé... Protégé? Protégé, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's a term. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I like that. I think that's good. And yeah, maybe it ends with... So the film ends with Frank getting killed, obviously, and then mm-hmm. Ben takes over completely. So that's one idea. That's mm-hmm. called Better Call Ben. Okay. Uh, my second idea is a uh, same movie but with a laugh track. <laughs> so it's literally the exact same movie but we've just had large laugh because I felt like this film had lots of scenes that were like funny but also upsetting and weird mm-hmm. and dark. Imagine the same film but with like a loud, ridiculous sitcom laugh track. True, yeah. I think it would be quite funny. Mm-hmm. And then everybody has to sort of pause in their respective situations just wait for the laughing to stop. Yes. Exactly, yeah. So, so just like when Dorothy? Isabella Rossellini when she appears in the background and she's naked and yes. you know, and you know, the gang's like oh sorry I shouldn't be here um, then, all, huge, then, huge then, laugh, then yeah. they all just sort of pause and just hesitate for a bit and they all, they, they, they all look around they all look at each other and you know, smile nod their heads a little bit and then half of them just slowly walk off the screen as the laughing's still happening yeah exactly exactly well I was inspired for this by the fact that apparently in the scene in the famous scene where Dennis Hopper has sex with Dorothy, mm-hmm. you know, with a baby wants blue velvet and the huffing of the ammonite tree and stuff. David Lynch is filming this scene and he is like cracking up laughing. <laughs> like he is like in tears of laughter at the scene. And Isabella Rossellini said, at the time I, d- I didn't understand. I, did- I thought it was, very- it was a very dark scene. I didn't know why he found it so funny. And she says, now when I watch it, I laugh really hard as well. <laughs> so I like the idea of that scene in particular mm-hmm. with like Friends style laugh- laughter track, you know, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> you know, maybe he is doing it with helium as well. So like maybe it's, it's just the whole thing played as. Dare I ask the question, yeah. if you were to take this remake um, a bit further mm-hmm. and you were to cast the cast of Friends, okay, who would be who? Oh, okay, okay. It's, a fun, it's a fun game to play. This is, we should do this more often, yeah, the Friends game. Okay, so I think Joey. I think Joey's Frank. Oh, no, I think Joey is uh, is, is Cara Glockland. Okay, so Ross is Frank. Yes. Yeah, he's, he's got that intensity. Absolutely not Chandler. It's not Chandler, no, no. Yeah, he's got that intensity. Chandler um, is absolutely Ben. Chandler is 100% Oh, yes, 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 yes. There we go. Okay, yeah, well, that's those three done. Yeah. Um, Monica is Isabella Rossellini, I think. 
Ra- mm. Rachel's definitely Laura Dern. Laura Dern. Hundred percent. Where does that leave Phoebe? It's not really. There's not a lot of female characters in this. No, I mean, there's all the old ladies. She could be all the old. She ladies. could be all of them. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I like that. She has to be the one who starts dancing. She has to be the one who's like. <laughs> Okay, so, so Monica is Isabella Rossellini, yeah. Rachel is Laura Dern, Phoebe is everybody else. Every other female character in the film. <laughs> yes. Great. Got it. Okay. All right. Okay, well, I had one that was recast as a musical, but I think we covered it with Friends. Mm. I mean, that's pretty much it. Maybe as a musical with the cast of Friends. Mm-hmm, sure. Okay, so I've got one more. This is slightly more in-depth, but not much. So this is a direct sequel set 20 to 30 years No, set 20 years later. Mm. Jeffrey and Sandy are happily married, and they have a college-aged daughter. Mm-hmm. called Samantha just because I thought that again that's the most like generically sure, wholesome yeah. name I could think of Samantha who would play the daughter of Laura Dern and Carl McLaughlin mm, how old is she she's going to be like in her early 20s okay. early to mid 20s okay Saoirse Ronan I was thinking Saoirse Ronan too that's so weird even though like oh now, my god that's so weird well it's not that's, the most you, that's pretty much what you just did <laughs> sorry <laughs> that was so fetch <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, it's not the most obvious. That was the the one that was on my mind. I don't know why. Because, like, neither of them are ginger, but mm. somehow with that, yeah, I think that would work. Is she ginger? Sergio Ronan's ginger, yeah. She's Irish, of course she's ginger. Oh, sorry. I forgot that was the rule. <laughs> so, uh, she's been in college, and she's forced to return when her father, a.k.a. Karma Glocklin, is murdered under mysterious circumstances. So, the chief suspect is actually Dorothy. Mm-hmm. The Isabella Rossellini character, yeah. who is known to have been obsessed with Jeffrey for many years, despite their relationship ending, and she has frequently harassed and threatened the couple on many occasions. So she is the prime suspect number one. However, the police cannot find any evidence that she's guilty, so it's impossible to pin the crime on her. Mm-hmm. So Samantha comes back; the daughter comes back to the town where she grew up, which is the same town. It's still all white picket fences and gardens mm-hmm. and front lawns and. It's unclear what year it is. And she becomes obsessed with vengeance and she starts stalking Dorothy to try and find some evidence. Yeah. So it's a lot of rehash of the first film. She's like following okay. Dorothy around. She also befriends Dorothy's estranged son, who is, you know, she, obviously she has a son in the first film who's been kidnapped. Maybe their relationship hasn't endured. Maybe he still blames her for all that time he spent being captured and tortured. So they start up a little relationship. He's like the Laura Dern figure in this. Mm-hmm. And together they kind of plot to kind of try and basically find out what's really going on. And they do a lot of investigating. She put, at some point, she's going to break into Dorothy's house, just like her father did. There'll be like a whole rehash. She'll be disturbed. She'll have to hide in the closet. And she'll have to watch Dorothy going about her business. Obviously, Dorothy's a lot older now. It's like 20 years on. Mm. And she'll be shocked when, instead of Frank coming up, who should come up but her own mother, Laura Dern. Mm. She comes up. And uh, yeah, the two of them have a passionate lesbian sex sesh. Okay. Yeah, and she's just watching through the closet like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> sure. This is disturbing on so many levels. She's going to find out that actually what really happened is that Dorothy and Jeffrey continued to have their affair throughout the next 20 years, even though Jeffrey married her mother, mm-hmm. the Laura Dern character. And it turns out that Jeffrey was actually the real villain the whole time. Because mm-hmm. I feel like in the, this film, he was somewhat sympathetic, but also kind of a bit creepy because, you know, he's a bit of a voyeur and he's a bit, you know, he, che- he does cheat on Laura Dern with Dorothy and you know, mm-hmm. he does hit Dorothy. You know, he's got definitely got that darkness in him. Yeah. So maybe over the next 20 years after Frank dies... Jeffrey ends up becoming quite abusive to Sandy and Dorothy, both of them as well. He, he cheats on them both and he also abuses them both. Maybe he got really addicted to poppers and kinky sex as well. <laughs> and basically he kind of became Frank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think Karl McLaughlin would do that really well. So rather than being love rivals, as you'd expect in this kind of film, Dorothy and Sandy actually befriended each other. They kind of bonded over their, um, you know, shared suffering 
at the hands of this monstrous character. Mm. And together they plot to bump Jeffrey off so they can both be free. So it turns out they both plot uh, to kill him. And they okay. did it together. Okay. So all the women came together. And uh, I don't know how this is going to end. But I'm guessing that maybe Cersei Ronan finds out and is like, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> cool. I don't know, help me out. Maybe it's like some kind of a twist. Turns out that Cersei Ronan was actually the one who murdered him. Then we get a scene of when they go to murder him and he's already dead or something. Oh, okay. And maybe she's got amnesia or something. She doesn't know she was the one who did it. Maybe. Or maybe she's like multiple personality disorder or something. Could be, yeah. That could be interesting to see her do mm-hmm. something different. Yeah, I've not really forced it through. The only other thing I thought for this one was that Dorothy's still a nightclub singer, mm. but she's had to update her act a little bit. <laughs> so now she's singing Rihanna songs. <laughs> okay. That idea of like Isabella Rossellini with that kind of very flat monotone voice singing like, you can stand under my umbrella, Ella, Ella, so something like that. I don't know. But yeah. Sure. Yeah. Come on, root boy, boy, come and give it up. You know, just, you know, just something silly. So that's, that's all I had. Yeah, that works for me. Not the best I've ever done, but you know. Mm. That's pretty much it. So yeah, that was Red Satin. Lovely. So, listener submissions? Yeah, sure. Great. So, uh, my drinking game for you this week is drink for references to colours and or fabrics. I thought that was going to be it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Okay. You ready? Yep. Okay. So, Daniel Link said Red Velvet, in which the villain does nasty things to a cake. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Ollie Brady said, so this movie has a Robin at the end of it, so maybe the sequel is Blue Velvet 2, Rockin' Robin. The villain becomes obsessed with the song, Rockin' Robin, and kills to the tune. Oh man, don't kill to music. That's the worst thing to do to music. How so? It ruins the music. Ruins the song. Mm. Uh, at one Aussie nerd, says Cecil Hops, says uh, Red Silk. That's a, that's a double. That's definitely a double. Uh, Mike Carey. You right? I'm going to start slurring my words soon. <laughs> when Ellie at the end. Uh, Mike Carey says, National Blue Velvet. To recover from the trauma of the first film, Jeffrey moves to England, mm-hmm. has a daughter and buys her a horse. Okay. Yeah, National Velvet. It's, I think it's a horse racing film. Oh, right. Okay. Cool. Uh, Dennis Fanning said, uh, Blue Velvet 2, Black Velvet, if yeah. you please. <laughs> <laughs> like the if you please. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know that song, right? Mm-hmm. Joel Bakker said, Blue Hawaii, David Lynch goes tropical. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Brian Hunt mm-hmm. says Fifty Shades Bluer. Joe Herman says Boo Velvet. Frank is a ghost now. So Frank is a ghost. Is he? Yeah, Boo Velvet. He's sounding more like a sheep than a ghost there. Really? Yeah. Boo Velvet. No, you're still doing the sheep thing. Boo Velvet. I think you're missing the difference between a sheep and a ghost. Ghosts have that kind of bleaty it's, thing. No, it's smoother with a ghost. Boo Velvet. Yeah, but higher, high pitched. Boo Velvet. That's not quite what I meant, but all right. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Give me your best Boo Velvet then. No. Oh, come on. No, I don't want it now. Come on. No. Nope. We're not continuing until I've said you do a Boo Velvet. Boo Velvet. That was really half assed. Yeah, that's the kind of ghost I'd be. A right. half-assed ghost. Yeah. I cannot be asked of this. <laughs> you know, I can't even be bothered to die. <laughs> Too lazy to die. That's, that's the kind of ghost you'd be. That's me. <laughs> okay, this is very you, actually, this next one. Uh, Rosalind Van Dias said, Blue Velveeta, the warmest cheese. <laughs> <laughs> yep, sure. This is my personal favourite. 
Stephen Jones said, Clue Velvet, a whodunit mystery. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Neil Fersco, or Niall Fersco, Neil Fersco says, a spin-off with Ben just called One Suave Motherfucker. (laughs) Yep, Mm. yeah, that'd be be good. I'd watch that. Yeah. Francesco Benincasa said, Green Porno. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Green Porno? Blue Velvet, Green Porno, yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. I guess. Got a drink for that. Glenn Fleischman said, uh, Blue Velvet 2, ear today, gone tomorrow. And Connor Crehan said, I'm Blue Dabba Dee Dabba Die Velvet, a Europop movie. Why on earth did I not see that coming? <laughs> oh, God. Imagine if that was a song she sang in the club every night. Ladies and gentlemen, the Blue Lady. <laughs> I'm Blue Dabba Dee Dabba Die. <laughs> Great. And now imagine her as like one of the, the the blue man trio. Yes, as well. <laughs> she blew herself. Yes. <laughs> Blokebusters, who once again complained that they have not had time to watch this movie. Mm-hmm. We've only given you thirty two years, guys. So you know. You know what, guys? I feel your pain. There's not enough time. <laughs> There's never enough time. You should have watched it at breakfast. Nevertheless, so their idea is Red Velvet again. So, oh, man. a surreal film about one man's obsession with feeding his nightly conquests red velvet cake. And it ends with one of them going the way of Mr. Creosote from, uh, have you seen that uh, Monty Python sketch? No. Where the guy like eats so much that he's, he just explodes. No. Sounds great. Yeah. I'll, I'll look it up. Classic comedy, yeah. And finally, Cinema Recall, at Cinema underscore Recall, Black Denim. Oh, fucking hell, that's a double drink. It's a double drink. It's the last one, though, so then you're okay. You can do the rest at your own pace. Well, that's a good way to neck a beer before the end of a podcast, though. So. Indeed, yeah. The things Harry does for you, dear listeners. <clears throat> Well, me. <laughs> That's staying in the cup. <laughs> uh, black denim. After Jeffrey and Sandy get married, things look good for a while. That is until Dorothy turns up at their home with claims that she ha- she has another stalker. Not sure how it ends, but there's a guy with Mayor McCheese head singing Toxic by Britney Spears in it. So. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Sounds suitably surreal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, those are our list of submissions for Blue Velvet. If you have any sequel ideas for Blue Velvet or any films we've done in the past... Let us know. We are Beyond the Box Set. You can find us at beyondtheboxset.com. Our podcast is available on all good podcasting platforms, including iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Google Podcasts, you name it, we should be on it. You can also reach out to us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search Beyond the Box Set or at Beyond the Box Set for Twitter. We're also on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Beyond the Box Set. And we have merchandise available on Public. And if you like the show, give us a review. Just give us a five star or even a four star. We'd prefer a five star. Review and uh, it will really help us out to find new listeners. Don't 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 give us a four star. No, Harry's not here for a four star. No. Five stars only. No, so. my, my ego can't take that. The slightest criticism and he will wither mm-hmm. away like mm-hmm. the wicked witch of the west. Um, and if you really enjoy the show, we've more than five stars. Then uh, tell someone. Yeah, spread the word. Yeah, get new people listening. It all helps. Every little helps. That I think that's all the plug in. So next week, Harry. Next What's happening? W- next week, um, I've arranged a guest for us. Sure. So I started a job recently at a pub. Not sure if you can tell by the way I'm speaking. And uh, one of my co-workers there, a man called Kit Shepard, wants to do a film called May, which yes. is a horror film, apparently, mm. um, from 2002, one that I've not heard of. I had never heard of this. Yeah, and so obviously neither of us have ever seen it. We have no idea what it is. It could be a drag-me-to-hell situation. It could be... Uh, whatever this was, a blue velvet situation. It could be a the room situation. Could be a the room situation. Kit says that it's not well regarded, but he likes it. It's his favourite film, and he he loves it for some reason. So I'm 
intrigued to mm. see what that is and to see what our reactions are to Indeed. this Indeed. Yeah, we're going in blind, people. Yep. So, Tune in to find out. Yeah. If any of you have seen it, then, you know. That, 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 yeah, because we hope the listener submissions aren't a total bust for next week. Oh, the listener submissions are going to be different months, aren't they? Probably, yeah. It's gonna be like, well, that's the drinking game. June, July, August. So just prepare yourself now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Can no. you do better? Let us know. You know rise to the occasion. Yeah. Right. Cool. All right. Well, uh, tune in. Same time next week. Same place. Same time. Thank you very much. Bye, guys. Bye.